You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome to Before They Were Live, an ongoing and monthly conversation about the Disney animated canon in chronological order. Today we're discussing the 15th movie in the canon, 1955's Lady and the Tramp. This is a depolarizing movie where uh, people from all, or animals from all different walks of life can come together. Uh, We have um, the high class and the low class joining up. Uh, We have cat people and dog people um, growing to, to enjoy one another. Um, with me, as always, is Michael Farmer. Uh, he's a man who often gets asked if he can read, and he always replies uh, in more than one language. And um, today, we also have a special guest with us today. Uh, it is Sarah Kluster of the Christian Feminist Podcast. And just coincidentally, um, we also had our our October 2017 episode also had a uh, Christian feminist. Um, that was when we had Victoria Reynolds Farmer. So uh, we're happy to have you here with us today, Sarah. I'm very happy to be here. This is one of my favorite movies I've watched probably more than almost any other Disney movie. Well, um, I just uh, had a couple opening remarks, and then uh, just as I was thinking about this movie, um, it feels a little um, timeless and even placeless in a way. Um, it's obviously, um, there. you know, it's, it's kind of just a general... Um, small town uh sort of feel but it it feels like it could be almost anywhere um there's there's a variety of accents that all come together in this movie um a variety of ethnic stereotypes you mean (laughs) well maybe um yeah 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 we can we can we can get go down that road as we arrive there um but yeah it just uh it feels um somewhat timeless and placeless but at the same time um it it was released in 1955, and it's depicti- depicting um, the early 1900s. So people who watch this movie probably, you know, would have lived through that area era. So even though it feels maybe timeless from today, it, you know, it'd be like watching a movie today that was set in the 70s. So um, right, that's weird to yeah. think of, isn't it? The, the the time between when this movie's set and when it's released is less than the time between when it's released and when we're talking about it. Right. That's incredibly depressing. It is depressing. It's, it's, it's kind of like the statistic when they say like that uh, the release of Gone with the Wind was closer to the Civil War than it is to now. Also very depressing. Yeah, but uh, yeah. In, th- in that case, being close to it doesn't mean it's accurate, right? I'm not sure how accurate this is to 1909. I will say um, I'm pretty sure this town is supposed to be Marceline, Missouri, which is where Walt Disney grew up. I'm maybe not supposed to be, but I think it's supposed to recall that. I've never, I've never been to Marceline. Tell that for in the uh, DVD. Uh, if Marceline is half as beautiful as the town in this movie, I want to move there today. This is, this is like the platonic ideal 
of a small American town? Um, one of the things that I feel that makes this kind of platonic ideal of a small town so interesting is I grew up in a very small town, now probably not nearly as small as Marceline seems to be, but it is interesting that we we see the life uh, in in the way that many times small towns are shown. We see we see the daily life of the wealthy, um, but we don't see actually any um, the daily life of any actual poor humans. We only really see the the lower class dogs, and I think that that makes it incredibly interesting because it obviously allows Disney and everyone to comment on something that would seem a little too harsh at the time if it were involved with humans. Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, um, we don't really see any humans. Uh, well, I guess we do. I guess we see Tony and what's, what's, what's the partner's name, Joe. I was going to say, we don't see any, any humans besides Jim Deere and Darling, but you're right. We, we see other people who have a certain amount of money at least. Although I guess you could say that Tony and Joe are blue collar. Along with the police officer and um, the uh, dog catcher. Right. And the dog catcher is the big villain. So. Yeah. And I think some of that was intentional as far as just, you know, giving a kind of a dog's perspective on the world. Um, but I do, yeah, I think it's interesting what you were saying there, Sarah, like, is there a, is there a social commentary kind of hidden within the, you know, within the story or, or maybe it's not very well hidden, you know, but it's, you know, it's softer to, you know, it's like the, uh, the classic spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down. Very much so. Um, because the only, the only hint of like poverty or lower class you get is with the animals and they are all in fact, uh, the, Ethnic stereotypes, they are all portrayed as the ethnicity of where the breed they are originates. And the thing I, well, I will be honest, I didn't think of this. Uh, My husband thought of this while we were watching it the other day. He commented that all of the, all of kind of the upper class dogs, the, the wealthier dogs, the dogs who have homes, those are all kind of what we would consider first wave, um, immigration there scottish southern standard american and all of the poor dogs that are going to be in the pound those would have all been essentially the ethnicities that in the early 1900s would have actually been immigrating to the u.s as second wave immigrants so you have the italian well you have the italians of the Huic people you have mexican chihuahua you have the russian wolfhound or the borzoi you have the English bulldog, even though he's very much portrayed as being like a cockney, um, you have like little dachshund. And so everybody's speaking with their, with the accent of where their, um, where their breed originates. And so he turns to me and he says, do you think this is a comment on immigration? And I was like, well, I don't know. Yeah, I think it's always hard to tell <laughs> when it's a comment and when it isn't, particularly with Disney, right? Right. Um, but I I do think it's fun to I mean that's that's part of why we do the episode right is um you know to to dig into that so yeah, I, what, what I do, do guys... think I do think you have to listen you have to look at this in the context of what other comedy looked like in the fifties this sort of ethnic humor was 
huge. And I don't think I don't think the original audience would have really thought anything of it. So if you listen to the old Fred Allen radio show, all of his characters are ethnic stereotypes. Most of them fairly good natured, but um yeah, I mean that's where you get Senator Claghorn who becomes Foghorn Leghorn, for example, and there's not a whole lot of breathing room between Senator Claghorn and Trusty the uh the the bloodhound do you know what i mean so i if it's a commentary i think it's a commentary that's going on in a widespread way in the 1940s and 50s and this this movie is just kind of picking it up but uh i do think that's interesting that that the uh the more recent immigrants are otherized in a way that the the uh first wave immigrants are just not i, I think that's a great observation So we meet them in the pound, and that was an interesting scene to me. Um, just I, I couldn't tell if it was supposed to be sad or funny. Um, I don't know if you guys have had <laughs> the same experience, or if I'm just dense in some way. But um, like they're they're obviously the, yeah. It, there's there's puppies crying and stuff, but it it seems to be played for laughs in a way. Oh, it did not go over well um, with my husband. They, you know, they start off and you, you see the, um, you see kind of the quartet of the main dogs who are kind of, uh, they're, they're singing, they're howling and you get that lovely, sad image of the shadows of the bars going across them as if they're, they're in prison, you know, hinting at like prison uniforms hmm. and it's showing the crying puppies and our dog is just sitting on the couch with us and he just looks at me and he's like, this is so traumatic. You should have you should have told him that let this be a lesson to him that if he if he keeps acting up he's going to the pound with Boris and I can't remember the other dogs' names. Nutsy is the one who gets killed. Yeah, that that was an. Ex- I remember being very sad by that when I was a child, and I as I was rewatching this and trying to think about it critically and not just be like, oh, my favorite movie as a child. Um, I was sitting there trying to think about, you know, all of the stuff that's, and I think the thing I, I, that I finally came upon is that this is, was probably the first movie I ever saw as a child that not that it really talks about, but just kind of gently introduces this idea of privilege in the sense that like lady is no more inherently deserving of a home or love than any of these other dogs. She just happened to be one that was at the puppies at the pet store and got picked. Right. Mm. Um, and so, cause I remember being little being like, well, that's really unfair. Why, you know, why does she get a human that loves her and these other dogs don't? And, you know, and they do a great job with the idea that, you know, we're showing um, kind of in shadow. They do a lot of stuff with shadow. I noticed in this film, um, so they're, they're showing this shadow of Nutsy kind of going, um, across and you hear kind of the clang of, uh, the gate closing. And then we know later on that, you know, that that is definitely the fate that, are, that awaits our, our hero tramp, like the second that they get to the pound. And so it, having already seen the bad thing happen, I, it, it makes it so much more real because we've already seen another dog get, well, at that point, I'm presuming probably shot. I don't know 
you know, now I guess they're euthanized, but then I presume they're just shooting them because it's, you know, probably 1905 or something. I think the movie's set in 1909, but yeah, point taken. I, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, I think this movie does a nice job with, with some of those, um, the the letting the audience kind of figure that stuff out, like um, the the foreshadowing and things I feel like is is nicely done, like where, where the threads weave together. Um, so you see there's that one, of course, that you just mentioned. Um, uh, Aunt Sarah is an interesting one where when we first meet her, she's off screen and, and the phone call and then and then we meet her and then she's, you know, her kind of redemptive arc ends again off screen. You know, they're mentioning like, oh, where are the dog biscuits that she sent? So, I mean, it, it's it's more subtle than I think, uh, the, you know, these animated movies tend to get credit for. Yeah, I agree with that. It feels like it's pitched for a for an older audience. Hmm. Yeah, maybe so. Certainly, like I think I appreciate this movie as an adult in a way. I, I loved this movie when I was a kid, but rewatching it, I, I found it um, really beautiful and moving, with a few obvious exceptions. <laughs> my favorite, uh, my favorite part of the pound is Boris, the Russian wolfhound, or Borzoi, or whatever he's supposed to be. I, uh, I, I think he is hysterical, and I love that he quotes Gorky. Do you feel a special kinship with him, Michael? I do, yeah. The the, the sad uh, philosophical dog. I, I I get him, Boris, and I would I would love to see if I weren't so dead set against the sequels to these movies. I would love to see a sequel focusing on Boris. I was I was wondering about that the the fact that he quotes Gorky. I don't I don't want to pretend like I know anything about Gorky. I'm just looking at the uh, the Wikipedia page for the lower depths, which is what he uh, quotes from. And just speaking of subtleties and stuff, um, according to Wikipedia, um, the the presentation of the lower classes was viewed as overly dark and unredemptive. And um, so I'm wondering, you know, again going into subtleties, do you think there's anything there? Like, do you think uh, they're they're purposely referring to Gorky in order to because I, I don't know is is this is this more redemptive in a way of the lower classes? I think we've got another academic paper that somebody other than us can write. Well, jumping off from there, I just um, there was something else that you guys mentioned that I I thought um, was worth talking about, which is kind of that uh, the. The use of shadow, and particularly, I think it's it's more than just shadow. Like the visuals are, there's there's a lot done with shadows, but I think um, just the contrasts in this um, in this picture are are something uh, that's worth noting. Mm-hmm. Say more, Josh. Well, I mean, I just um, you know uh, we we start with Lady, of course, you know, in the welcoming, and then we and then we see Tramp, and we and we kind of get his life. Um, we see uh, the uh, you know the 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 somewhat villainous uh, Aunt Sarah you know like and the and the cats um, but I think she's she's starkly contrasted with then the rat you know which is a more more of a real and actual threat you know like more mm-hmm. of a real and dangerous threat um, yeah I, I think if you're looking for it you, I'm sure I'm sure you guys could pull out more like but just you know, different different contrasts um, that that ring throughout the movie. You have the the threat 
inside the house, which is the the Siamese cats, which is a real threat, right? I mean, the Siamese cats come in for a lot of very reasonable criticism that I'm not sure we need to go over because we talked so much about the Native Americans in Peter Pan. I think we could mostly say the same thing about the Siamese cats, but we could talk about it if you want. So they're a real threat, and that song has not aged well, but I do think it does a good job expressing their menace. They're actually really creepy. Uh, but they're nothing compared to the threat outside the house. First, the stray dogs that chase Lady, uh, I mean, who are legitimately frightening. And then, then of course, the rat, which is, I was terrified of the rat as a kid, and I'm not unafraid of it now. One of the things they do, especially with the rat, is, again, they, they do a good job of, uh, you know, they kind of show it at the very beginning, and then it kind of goes, and you're like, ah, oh, and you just, you know, Lady's out there, she kind of growls at it, and then kind of, you know, runs off to be to do her dog thing um but all of the all of the other animals well um all the other dogs are very much uh have a you can look at them and be like oh this is a cartoon depiction of a of a dog or this is a cartoon depiction of a cat Mm -hmm. the the rat you're like oh that's like an ana very like anatomical drawing in like a textbook like it's very very creepy and very dark, with the exception of just those glowing yellow eyes. Oh. And it's just like, you know, you know that that rat is sitting there thinking, my fleas will spread the bubonic plague to you. Like, that's what that, <laughs> that is what's going through that rat's mind right now. Yeah, and when and you say dark, I mean, he's he's a different color palette than everybody else in the movie. I'm sorry to assume the rat is male. Maybe maybe it's a lady rat. A ratus. <laughs> yeah i think is that the female term for rat <laughs> uh, it, it is on this show <laughs> a rat it <laughs> like the chipettes yeah i mean this period of disney does villains really really well uh there, there are some legitimately frightening villains the first couple decades i mean beginning with the Wicked Queen from Snow White, who, as we talked about, is absolutely terrifying. And then you have Stromboli, who's really scary. You have that demon at the end of Fantasia. You have, we'll have Maleficent next time, who's probably the greatest of all Disney villains. And, and I mean, the rat really fits in a line with them. And, and uh, you actually have a large number of villains in this uh, in this movie, you have the Siamese cats, you have Aunt Sarah, you have the dog catcher, but the rat is more frightening than all of them and smaller than all of them, which is interesting. Well, the thing I think you get with, with the rat is all of the other, you know, Aunt Sarah, she comes in, she's still, she's family, she's a person. Um, and so you know that she herself has at least good intentions towards the people, Whereas the rat has good intentions towards no one. Right. He wants to eat the baby, I think. I'm not I've never been quite sure what the rat wants to do. Yeah, and the, that's the other thing is, you know, and yeah, the rat can tell from the outside that there's a baby and so we're very specifically going towards the baby's room. And one of the things I thought, you know, uh Lady and Tramp are kind of having their argument discussion um when they're at um when they're kind of at the scenic overlook or wherever they are after they've had their you know um after they've had their romantic evening and tramps doing this wonderful job of like oh come with me live the fun and fancy free life and lady just wins the argument because she's like well who's gonna watch over the baby 
And that's, that's kind of it, right? Like there's no other, like, what can you say? That, that is a dog's job. And so he's like, yeah, I got nothing. That is, that's the reason for dog's existence. And so, you know, they, and then, you know, she gets caught and they, all that kind of thing. But, you know, she wins the argument by being, well, I got to watch over the baby. And he's like, yeah, I guess you kind of do. You're a dog owner. Does that strike you as accurate for how dogs think of the world? I would say that it is. Um, now, I have a much larger dog now, um, courtesy of my, my new spouse, than I did when I was younger. When I was younger, we had um, nice little uh, Shih Tzus who, you know, if they were in this movie, would have the same accent, essentially, as the Siamese cats. True. Although Shih, uh, Shih Tzus were, uh, were bred to protect the temples in China, weren't they? Yeah, which you'd have to have a lot of them to do any good. It's <laughs> funny, yeah. Really um, so I currently own a uh, Rottweiler. So if she were in this movie, um, she would be speaking with a heavy German accent and would probably be like, she'd probably be like a guard at the pound and would be like portrayed as like some sort of like East German Stasi, you know, like, oh, you're, you're in it with the humans against the dogs. Cause you know, that's how people think of Rottweilers. Um, Although it'd be, it'd be nice to see a Rottweiler crush Aunt Sarah's head like a grape. Yeah, um, she, uh, my dog Kara definitely could do that probably if she wanted to. And so there, there's always this sense of like, we're dog people and we own you, but we need to have, we have a respect, we have a respect for that you are a very large animal. And so we feed you and give you treats so that you, you know, do what we tell you. Um, and a lot of the stuff that rings true in this is one, because uh, this is one of the questions I was going to ask both of you is, uh, if it, I know that you uh, are not a dog person, Michael, but maybe Josh is. Um, but the idea, especially at the very beginning, when they're like, um, when they first get her, and I think we need to talk about that scene a little bit more. Um, when they first get her, and they put her, you know, they're like going to put her downstairs. Like, well, you know, just just for tonight, we'll let her sleep in the bed. And, you know, six months later, she's been sleeping in the bed the whole time. Um, you know, the dog decides it's time to get up. So everybody in the house kind of has to get up because the dog has decided that she needs to get up, you know? So there's a lot of that kind of stuff I think is very true. And the idea that all, all dogs really want to do is, you know, they are, they are, they, they are thousands and thousands of years of essentially, um, genetic engineering to make a pleasant, happy companion that will love you in exchange for food. I mean, why not take advantage of that? Well, love you and protect you, right? Because, I mean, dogs are bred for particular purposes. I think Cocker Spaniels, which is what Lady is. You wonder why she doesn't have a Spanish accent, by the way. Um, Cocker, Cocker Spaniels are bred to retrieve fallen ducks or something. They're hunting dogs, aren't they? Uh yeah, so Cocker Spaniels, um, well, she doesn't have, she's an American Cocker Spaniel, so that's why she doesn't have gotcha. the accent, I'm sure. Um, but so Cocker Spaniels um, were uh, bred to flesh uh, uh, woodcocks. There you go. Um, so there, it's a so it's a, a woodland game bird. Um, so yeah, they were bred to flesh those uh, for hunting, and so but they're supposed to have very steady nerves because they're ideally, if you have one that that works, like they're around guns and gunfire. You know, they have to be very, they have to follow these commands and all that kind of thing. But, but, I mean, that that seems right. Lady is pretty unflappable. 
she really is. Um, and I think that, I think they do a good job of her, like, um, because she, you know, she has this little home that she's living in. Um, and you kind of see, I was, uh, you kind of have this sense of like, you know, she is there to protect the humans. You know, she really does not like those, those cats, which, you know, considering what the cats are intentionally doing, you're like, yeah, I can see that. You the, know, they're the, the cats to- are very true to life. I have to say, like basically everything those cats do are things cats do and they, they do it just to mess with you. Uh, my my favorite thing about the cats is uh, when Aunt Sarah comes in that they pretend to be hurt, which is something cats actually do because cats are experts at getting human sympathy. So I, I, other than the obvious racial problems with the Siamese cats, I thought they were really well portrayed in terms of how cats actually act. Josh, do you have pets? Yeah, we have a cat, and and we 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 enjoy him very much. So. Um... Does he yeah, does he pull, does he pull your uh, tablecloth over just to do it? Um, he probably he probably would. I don't I don't know. I mean, I feel like our cat our cat thinks he's a dog. Maybe <laughs> like he's kind of a dogish cat. My favorite thing about cats, and I I don't know how we got on this subject. I guess it is a movie about dogs and cats. But my favorite thing about cats is they don't meow in nature. Their meows are an imitation of human babies crying which they do because they know it will get your sympathy really i don't know if that's, that's true very that's, creepy. that's what i've always heard <laughs> okay maybe i don't know they definitely yowl um maybe the meow is is only in civilized cats i don't know that's that's interesting i have to look that up um, I think while we're there, though, um, you guys kind of hit on some of the stuff about the unfairness, uh, the innate unfairness in some of this movie. Um, and I, I think it comes out really strongly when the cats move in and 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 lady is, um, you know, perceived as being as being the bad the the bad animal when it was clearly the cats who caused all the problems. And I think um, that's part of why this movie maybe resonates for for younger people is, you know, the, that feeling of justice is so strong in kids and, um, watching this movie, you just really feel the injustice of that. Sure. Yeah. And I think one, just we, you know, why, I don't know, but we, we tend to always think we, we, you rarely have movies where cats are the hero, right? Like I'm trying to think of Oliver and company. Okay. I guess that's, yeah. So we have the one, and I'm trying to, but pretty much everything else, you know, dogs are the heroes. Um, and I, you know, one of my favorite book series as a kid had a cat as the main villain uh, against the dog. And so it's just, it's, it's culturally a thing. Um, and, but what you get, I think with this sense of injustice is not only do you get kind of this, uh, this kind of uh, privilege for, you know, these dogs who have owners versus this kind of, constant menace and threat of death for the dogs who are strays is you get this um i feel i feel like you really get this sense of like not only not only are the are the cats and everything doing all this but they're not the ones having the humans aren't really the ones solving any of the problems right the dogs are the ones solving all the problems so aunt sarah takes lady gets her um uh gets the muzzle put on her lady runs away and 
immediately uh, runs into Tramp. They have to go to the zoo, which is a fairly delightful scene, to get the muzzle taken off. Um, and so all of all of the pretty much all of the problems in here that the humans create, the dogs end up being the ones who solve. Hmm. Well, and the the movie is largely shot from a dog's point of view too. It's it's very low to the ground. And my memory was you didn't see Jim Deere and Darling's faces, but that's that's actually not true. They they do show their faces, but the the dog's eye view is kind of the child's eye view as well, right? It's this this movie shows you what it's like to go through the world, uh, go through the uh, world, low to the ground. Yeah, and I think that's what it does well. Yeah, one of the things that also um, that makes that I think even more arresting is at least the version I was watching was the was the cinemascope version. And so you have these incredibly wide shots and of things that you sit there and they're like, oh, this should be in a John Ford movie. Oh, mm. this should be some grand epic landscape. And no, it's the bottom half of some easy chairs and a fireplace. Mm. And so to me, that makes it, you know, kind of showing the this kind of domesticity on kind of this massive epic scale from the dog's point of view because you know the home is her whole world right like she she doesn't care she doesn't know what's on the inside of any other houses and dogs are very much like that like their home is their castle and this and especially that home it's fairly massive and so you just have this massive this kind of cult of domesticity on a visually massive kind of epic scale in the movie because you know, Darling, who never really leaves the home, um, and, you know, she kind of fulfills her cult of domesticity and uh, making sure that, uh, you know, they're married, she gives birth, and then you kind of, uh, you see Lady kind of repeating the same pattern. And I, I mean, the, the good dogs are quite literally domesticated, right? And they, I think it's tr- Trusty who calls... The, the license and the collar, the greatest honor man can bestow. So one of the tensions you have in the movie is between the domesticated dogs who are very safe and classy and the stray dogs who are threatening in various ways. Yeah, apparently no poor people have dogs in this movie. It's either rich people with dogs, you know, or strays. There, there's no just family that happens to have you know, a dog they got at the pound, right? Like, Although, again, as you say, we, we don't see any poor families other than maybe Tony and Joe. Even, even when Tramp is taking Lady around to show him all the different people who feed him, all those houses are pretty, uh, pretty nice. And again, that's a scene where we, you know, we... We get, we have the the Schultzes, we have the, um, the Irish family's name. So he's going through, and we're we're kind of seeing um, this this changing America. And so it, it's kind of interesting because we we look at this idea of like Marceline, these small towns in America is this i this idealized and very sanitized version of America's history. But in fact, this is, you know, right in the middle of the progressive era, which is in a time of enormous actual social change, which you can see mainly, I think, in this through the immigration. Um, and I think, yeah, you have that represented through the dogs and then 
you know, some of the families of here's the German family, there's the Irish family, there's the Italian restaurant, and all of those people probably would have been considered to have been pretty recent immigrants. Yeah, but there's there's not a lot of ethnic tension, at least not until you get the Siamese cats, who, after all, are a different race than everybody else. Do you know yeah. what I mean? The, like, yeah. all, all the ethnicities seem to get along pretty well. The dogs in the pound are kind of vaguely threatening, but they're they're not really threatening because of their race. They're threatening because they're stray dogs. And, and as you say, the German family, the Irish family, the Italians all feed uh all feed tramp we don't see any humans mistreating the dogs it's 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 kind of an immigrant's dream this this town in a way that i'm sure small towns were not really in 1909 although some of them probably were i mean the truth is most small towns did not get this variety of immigrant right i mean you you would have so Nebraska, for example, is largely settled by Czech and Eastern European immigrants. So you wouldn't have 50 different countries represented in a small town. That, that's, the, that's the really unrealistic piece of this. It's closer to New York City in that way. Yeah, and one of the things uh, that you end up with, I think, especially with the cats, is, you know, all the, all the other ethnicities, you know, are... Um, are portrayed via dogs that the, the idea that, okay, you know, the, the Siamese cats, they, they are so foreign that they are a different species, literally from the rest of us. Right. Like it's not just the different action. They are literally a different species um, than everyone else. Um, and it's, and I, I know y'all talked about that a lot on the previous episode, which I listened to. And then one of, but at least I feel I don't think that the, their song is nearly as bad as the um, song in uh, Peter Pan. Mm, <laughs> I don't know. It's it's pretty bad. I, I I don't know that we can. I, I don't know that I would say it's as bad as what makes the red man red because what makes the red man red is essentially about racism. But uh, the Siamese cat song is is pretty bad. I, I have to say the accent that Peggy Lee puts on. To play the, the Siamese cats is is pretty bad. Of course, their presentation as having buck teeth is uh, is pretty bad. That's that's a racial stereotype that we don't really have anymore about Asians. But that was that was one of the big ones at the time is that Asians all had buck teeth. So I I, I don't know. I I would I would say that song makes me as uncomfortable as what makes the red man red. But the sequence that's attached to it is much better in terms of what it does in the movie that I, I, maybe you're right in that sense. What do you think, Josh? As someone uh, who lives in China. Yeah. It's, it's hard to say. Um, I think what, what you said there really like, I mean, you said it in Peter Pan as well. Like it's, it's really not for us to say like coming at it from, I mean, speaking of, you know, having the privilege and, and, and that sort of thing, you know, for, for me to say like, well, this isn't, this isn't offensive or this is offensive is almost, you know, like it's, it's really, it's not mine to say. Um, I do think I didn't, I never understood. I, I didn't understand it as that as a kid, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, and so, yeah, there's, there's that line too, you know, of like how much are you getting it? Like how much, how much does it 
just in line with the stuff you guys were talking about before, like kind of the idealized, like um, everybody's from all different places and they all get along and there's no ethnic tension really whatsoever, you know, like with that one um, exception. Well, yeah, but the tension is, um, is it because of their ethnicity or is it because they're invading the house in a way and it, it is her job to protect the house, you know? Yeah, but, like, but, but I mean, think about yellow, yellow panic in the late 19th, early 20th century. The, the problem with Chinese immigrants was exactly that they were invading the house and that they were so foreign as, as opposed to European immigrants who, I mean, come from all these different cultures, but have the same skin tone, the same eye shape, things like that. So I, 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 I do think there's a difference. And I, I think it's significant that she, she feels them as invaders. I, I, I think in 1909, although maybe not in 1955, that that would have been significant. I think that's a really good point, and it's not. Yeah, that's not one that I thought about. The, yeah, relating the invade the invader aspect to it. Um, yeah, I didn't think about it that way. So now, now that you say that, it does make it seem uh, much worse to me. Which again, it comes back to, uh, you know, the more I guess historically informed or you know just generally like informed you are as as a person, the more these things kind of gain a different color and a different tone. It's hard, though, because you don't want to ruin people's experience of the movie. I used to, uh, when I was at the University of Georgia, I used to do this visual rhetoric lesson where I showed three uh, three Disney things. So I showed Steamboat Willie, which is uh, heavily influenced by menstrual shows. And then I showed this Pluto cartoon called Pantry Pirate, I think it's called, that, that features a mammy. Uh, and then I showed the I Want to Be Like You scene from The Jungle Book, which I know we'll talk about whenever we get to The Jungle Book. Uh, and and I ended up stopping doing that because students told me that I had ruined their childhood, which on one level, right, their childhood is built on this very uncomfortable racial idea. <laughs> but on the other hand, I like these movies and I don't really want to ruin them for anybody. Uh, so it's 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 just something we have to take stock of when we watch them and talk about them is that there's there's a lot of stuff in here that is not just not politically correct. It's it's really offensive and vicious. But I think there is room for both. Right. Like in in the sense that like you can watch it and enjoy it and um, in the sense that if you so like. Let's say that you were just upset that, you know, every dog has has a different accent. And so you were just like, oh, this is just ethnically like whatever. And you just tossed it versus, you know, you can watch it and you can say, well, you know, in, in some ways, you know, it's, it's bringing to the fore, you know, where these different types of dogs do come from. And, you know, maybe there's a better way to do that. Like, I'm not I'm not saying there isn't, but like. Like I think there's a room for a more charitable reading and a more like, yeah, like there there is a there is this is an idyllic place that is also a very diverse place and I think there's something to be said for that that like within this platonic ideal of a small town it's extremely diverse I think and I I do think it's telling that the only two that bother most people are. The Siamese cats and the Chihuahua, which is, uh, you know, also, uh, also pretty, pretty, 
pretty uncomfortable. Uh, although he only has a couple lines, so you don't you don't feel it as much. I, I I mean, it is true that every single dog is some sort of ethnic stereotype, uh, and and one that I think people have largely forgotten about is Jock, the Scottish Terrier, is incredibly cheap, which is no longer a stereotype about Scot a Scotsman that they're cheap. But in the 1940s and 50s, uh, Scottish people were widely considered to be cheap. So he, he buries his bone and doesn't want anybody to find it. And he keeps talking about how everything is very expensive. I, I think that goes right over our heads today because uh, that's, that's no longer a stereotype. Uh, so that that's interesting. I, I, I do think that we give a pass to some of the other ethnicities in terms of the stereotypes, but it's it's much more difficult to do that with the Siamese cats and with the Chihuahua. Maybe because we still read those groups as other in a way that we no longer read Scottish people as other. to ask you guys about the uh the the going back to the scene where um lady and the the tramper are discussing he's he's looking over the city and he's seeing the fences and he's saying you can live outside the fences you can live free uh you can have this this liberated life and um the way the the way the movie kind of portrays that and addresses it um as as a good um but then it it never Again, this kind of goes back to the subtlety. Like it never ad directly addresses that as um, actually uh, a potential negative. It's just, you know, it, it just kind of moves that way to where you know he's happier um, having settled down. Well, one of the things is uh, uh, as uh, watching the uh, the DVD uh, that Walt had told kind of the background artist, like. When you're when you're painting uh, something to the effect of when you're making that that big view of and you're you're painting the backdrop and you're going to have the you're going to have the town and you're going to have the kind of the wilderness that I want you to make them both equally appealing, um, which I think it really does. Um, and I think inherently though that eventually tramps we see that you know tramps lifestyle is eventually going to be very dangerous because we see all these other animals living that lifestyle and they're in the pound and they are all under this like threat of death. Um, and so we get, and so ultimately if we have these two characters, you have, you kind of, you know, we have tramp and you have lady. And I think we have to say like lady comes first and we're introduced to her first, but whose, whose story really is it? Because tramp is the one who has the most growth, right? That's true. 
um, and the most change as a character, you know, Lady, essentially, you know, she, I'm going to say a little air quotes, you know, she's a dog, and so she gets married and has this family, which has the most bizarre genetics. All of the girls come out looking <laughs> exactly like her and are pure cocker spaniels. And the one boy it comes out as like a weird terrier mutt, um, exactly like her, his father. Um, and so she, but like, does she really change versus, you know, Tramp is the one who actually has like an emotional arc who winds up in a very different spot. Lady is living in the same house. She's, she, you know, essentially she has done all of the things that were expected of her that, you know, if we're going to be risque, you know, maybe she uh, she might have uh, actually gotten pregnant before getting married. She and, certainly know, seems to because Jock and Trusty talk about marrying her to make her an honest woman. The other thing I, 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 I have a little bit of humor towards is who are they saving her reputation to? They're the only two dogs that she knows. That's true. And they're fine with it. You know, um, it's, yeah, I, so I find that slightly amusing, but there is a wonderful kind of old, um, and I, I think this goes back to how we sense of this, this idealized, um, sanitized America, uh, vision of America's own past. Um, you get that in some of the, in like, the, in a lot of the scenes, and so, Yes, you know, they, they spent the night together and her, her ear, which is kind of a representation of her hair, is kind of like draped kind of over his shoulder. Um, and then you have uh, the wonderful spaghetti scene, uh, which apparently Walt thought wasn't going to, was going to be too silly and wanted to cut, which just seems bizarre because it's the most, it's the most iconic uh, image of the movie. Um, and you know they're they're going in and they kind of they have like a little kiss and then lady turns because she's blushing because she's so modest. I mean, all of that goes in with that kind of idealized, sanitized version of our own past. Um, that oh yes, this is all going to be fine. Um, and I don't know. I mean, there there is something immensely appealing about that. And I do know that that is one of the things my dad loved about it because. I remember him talking about that when we would, when I'd be a kid and we'd watch the movie and he'd be like, you know, movies now don't, you know, they're not modest like this one is. And so he, he just really loved the kind of the, the sweet, that kind of old fashioned sweetness it had. Yeah. Which is, which is something Disney is known for. And I, I think this is really the best example of it in terms of the best done example of it. Yeah, you guys really just illuminated a lot for me there because I I still didn't get the why are they going to propose to her like I didn't understand that at all until you guys just explained that so thank you to, to the pure all good. things are pure Josh <laughs> um, thank you Michael um, I did want to say there though uh, in fairness to Walt on that uh, wanting to cut the spaghetti scene he wanted to cut it before he saw it and Frank Thomas actually went and did the initial like animation of it himself because he believed in it and then once walt saw it then then he was like oh this is good we need we need this so um you know just in in some fairness to him he didn't he didn't see it and think oh that's that's trash he just he couldn't visualize it right which, which yeah if, if you were just told that two dogs are going to eat spaghetti by the way I'm sorry, I'm laughing so hard. Victoria and I went on YouTube after we watched the movie and looked at videos of dogs eating spaghetti, which uh, it does not look like the dogs in this movie eating spaghetti. It's a little less dainty. I, I would imagine not. Um, but 
yeah, dogs like to do everything like completely fully. Um, so one of the questions I guess I have for y'all is, uh, I'm pretty sure because this is the first like original idea that Disney creates, right? Or no, it's the, based on a it's based on a book. Well, what they what they talked about, um, or what it seemed that they indicated is that Walt is that the original idea came from Joe Grant. Um, and that this idea of like a baby, like replacing a dog and a family's life, which I have to say is 100% true. Everybody I know, all of my friends who had dogs and my brother and my sister-in-law who had dogs, you know, they were, they loved their dogs. They were pet parents, which is a phrase I generally hate. Yeah, me too. Um, because the idea that you could ever love your dog as much as an actual person loves a child is like, no, you don't have kids. But uh, well, dogs like, are traditionally practiced children. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, yeah, it definitely, and it generally is. Um, and so what ends up happening is, you know, they love their dogs. And the second, and I mean the second that that, do- that, that actual baby gets here, I mean, it's very true. That dog is relegated. That dog is off the bed. That dog is off the couch. That, you know, all of it, because all of a sudden the hair becomes a much bigger deal than it used to, because now there is somebody who is on the floor all the time. Um and most of the time, um, everybody, you know, dog and baby get along very well. And dogs generally are inc- just like ladies are incredibly protective of, you know, their new pack member. But um, anyway, sorry, that was a digression. Uh, the idea for the movie originated that he, he had seen some sketch. Uh, Walt had seen some sketches about that, about that, about a dog being displaced. And so as they worked with it, it sounded like at least in the DVD extras, that they commissioned Ward Green to create the novelization before the movie came out. Oh, interesting. And so that was a prep. uh, And so they created it, um, but the movie and the idea had already been that like the novel came out in like, so if this came out in 54, the novel came out in 53, but they'd obviously been working on it for years. So they commissioned him to make it an upstanding property. So people um, would have heard of it before it was released. I think the the understanding I had was that the guy that they commissioned had written a short story um, that Walt had seen in uh, Cosmopolitan magazine, I think, is where the short story first appeared. And you're right that they were working on this other story um, uh, from Joe Grant's own life. Uh, where his, you know, his baby had replaced his dog essentially, and so um, he was, you know, kind of writing the story based on that. And then they they merged them together, and then the rest of your details were all there. I don't need to repeat them, but that was my understanding of how how that all happened. Um, and I think you're right that there is an, an originality to this one that we haven't necessarily seen before, other than the fact that like a lot of those, you know, even like Snow White and Cinderella, like the source material isn't really that rich or like that, sure. you know, there's not a lot of depth to it. So um, as much as, as they were based on something, there's there's been a lot of creation within the studio prior to this. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Um, and I think one of the things that that's what makes the story so interesting is because you can actually say, well, who, you know, in Snow White or... Sleeping Beauty, which I will do next uh, month and all that kind of stuff. You know, the main character is the title, essentially. Um, but here we have, we have two characters, um, and they're kind of both really kind of ideally progressing on a journey. And I do think that's kind of the first time you get that in a Disney movie, is that these kind of dual protagonists as opposed to just kind of the one singular 
um, hero or heroine. Sorry, I'm I'm thinking quickly through all the movies, and I think I think you're right about that. Other than Ichabod and Mister Toad, and of course they're not in the same movie, really. They're just kind of pushed together. Yeah, I was trying to think through it too. I think I think you are right, and I think it is. Um... Well, maybe you, both of you can probably speak better to this than I can, but is, it seems like in storytelling in general, there's there's a, a a protagonist versus kind of the dual protagonist thing. Um, but this isn't something that they even uh, really go back to very often either, right? Like, I mean, I remember it being a big deal when Frozen came out about the kind of and we'll, you know we'll get there in <laughs> whenever we get twenty there, years. But, uh, yeah, in twenty years, but Lilo um, and Stitch. Yeah, Lilo and Stitch. Yeah, Lilo and Stitch I would say, yeah, you have you have dual protagonists, um, and then protagonists where there's no romantic relationship. So yes, because uh, I mean, Alice in Wonderland is the last female protagonist um, in Disney's lifetime that what did not have a love interest. Yeah, and I think the love interest aspect for this movie in particular is um, it's obviously like what's it's it's a huge part of the movie, you know, like like the fact that they they get together. But I feel like Tramp's story is not necessarily, um, well, how am I trying to say this? Like his 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 arc, like obviously, like he falls in love with um, Lady, but there's also like a, a complete uh, um, reversal on his on his entire lifestyle you know whereas like you were saying earlier sarah like lady basically stays in the same lifestyle but you know gains a gains a partner to go through it with women domesticate men we've talked about it over and over again yeah which is an interesting um yeah i think it's it's an ongoing interesting thing to me like like how that plays out and how that works well what what interests me is it it is basically explicitly stated that he sleeps around I, I mean you have that wonderful scene where tony says uh take a care take care of this one you know I, the, the implication is and, and you get it again in the pound that this is not the first female dog that tramp has brought to eat spaghetti and then impregnated uh on a hill above the city do, do you know what i mean the, the, yeah the uh trixie and you know uh Rosita and uh, Fifi and all of these um, other dogs. And you can see that you can see Lady's absolute shock um, when she hears about it, that she's just like, well, obviously. And then like the idea that someone would like step out on her or uh, whatever phrase you want to use is just like, like she just can't even believe it. Um, I just wonder though, as a culture, it feels like we've, we've embraced, uh tramp right like and mm-hmm. I, I don't mean just i don't mean just sexually like uh prom- promiscuity or anything like that like i i'm, I'm thinking just broader the freedom like, the, the freedom idea thing. yeah the freedom thing like don't be tied down don't you know nobody owns me um the lack of responsibility actually you know creates a better more fulfilling um merrier life um and it, it seems like you know in this movie addresses that and and says actually you're more, you're you're more fulfilled you know when you when you embrace your responsibility it's it goes back to the line you already brought up sarah like when they're on the hill like like who would watch over the baby like who's you know like who she's 
she's looking to her purpose as a as a dog but you know if we're reading these as more than dogs like just that higher calling or that higher purpose um and and now that grounds her and gives her a responsibility he's a tramp but they love him breaks a new heart every day he's a tramp they adore him and i only hope he'll stay that way He's a tramp, he's a scoundrel, he's a rounder, he's a cad. He's a tramp, but I love him. Yes, even I have got it pretty bad. You can never tell when he'll show up. He gives you plenty of trouble. I guess he's just a no-count pup, but I wish that he were double. He's a tramp. He's a rover, and there's nothing more to say. And um, what do y'all think of uh, what? Um, what do? You, what is y'all's opinion on some of the music that we've had in uh, this this one? It doesn't. It, it obviously doesn't have like nearly the songs that obviously we get in later Disney movies, but the Bella Note. Talk- yeah, that that's an amazingly romantic song. Um, we and that one, and then the uh, we have the song that uh, Peggy Lee as the dog Peg performs in the pound. And he's then a the, tramp. Uh, he's a tramp, and then we have the song that the the mother sings the the lullaby the mother sings to the baby, and I think those are. And I guess we have like the, the hymn at the very beginning. Yes, we do have the Siamese cat song, and then there's basically the hymn at the very beginning that opens and closes um, at Christmas time, which actually made me think this whole story takes place in a single year, um, and so that actually made me think a little bit of that cyclical nature of time that y'all were talking about in uh, Bambi, that you know, this this kind of starts and ends in a single year. Yeah, on the music, I would I I think Bella Note is just it's wonderful i really like it um it's basically the only song that i remembered i remembered almost nothing from this movie as i said last month i think i don't remember if i said that on air or off air um i i remembered almost nothing of this movie i didn't i did not watch it a lot as a kid um i remembered the bella note song i remembered the siamese song but more as an annoyance like it's a pretty i I find it grating yeah (laughs) like um so i yeah i don't i don't love it i really liked the christmas hymn i was thinking i need to get this on a on a christmas playlist for this year (laughs) coming up once we once we get christmas music season um can we talk about the scene leading up to bella note which i think is the best scene in the movie the scene with tony and joe uh uh, arguing about what to feed Butch, as they call the tramp. I, I just love that scene. I love Tony and Joe. I love Joe. I break a you face. I love. Uh, he's a talking to me. Yeah, he's a talking to me is the best. I love I, it. I will say that um, when I watched this, it was the first time I'd. Um, as we've just recently moved, we didn't have a DVD player set up, and so we were watching this on a. Um, on. Um, a uh, like a ps4 or something like that and so it for, we couldn't figure out how to take the uh closed captioning off which is 
Uh, so it was, there were lots of things that I caught because the subtitles were on that I never would have caught before. And one of them was that he's apparently saying butch. I always thought he was saying pooch, which fits, right? Like he, he's a dog. But I was like, that has to be wrong, right? Like my whole life I thought he's saying pooch. I, I remember no, being confused about that when I was a kid, whether he was saying butch or pooch. But I, I have always watched things with the closed captioning on, so... Yeah, I think the idea that, I mean, yeah, as you guys know, but the idea there now is um, that, you know, he has a different name in every, in, with every house. You know? He's I whatever he you want him to that. be. Yeah, he, I think he mentions that in the scene uh, leading up, like, before they get to Tony's, you know, like, here I'm, you know, at the Schultz's, I'm known as whatever, um, I forget all his names. Yeah. Jacques has multiple names, too. Uh, when When Tramp shows up and calls him... I forget what Jacques calls it, or what Tramp calls him, but he says, uh, I, it's, oh, I wrote it down. Um, Heather of Glen Karen to you. <laughs> Heather Lad of Glen Karen to you, which I don't even know what that means, but I, I really liked it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we should just run through some of the, the memorable scenes. I think we've, we've, uh, um, hit most of the themes and stuff. Um, but I, I love the the zoo, um, which you guys mentioned earlier. My one, um, I think we should spend a little bit of time there. One of my favorite things is uh, wait, they walk in and he says we should hit this place A to Z, and I'm thinking what zoo in the world is re- is arranged in alphabetical order? But <laughs> apparently this one is. <laughs> the zoo is very confusing in terms of the habitat sizes because the beaver seems to have several acres, but the lion and the tiger live in a cage together. <laughs> And all and all like monkeys, gorillas in the world are just apes, and they're all in one spot. But we we don't want to ask them because they're too closely related to humans. <laughs> the Beaver is yeah, played by Stan Freeberg, who was a popular novelty song guy uh, in this era. It is a very annoying role, although charming, nevertheless. Yeah, I was going to go with Charming. <laughs> he also, I think, plays the gopher in Winnie the Pooh. Is that right? That's right, yeah. It's it's because of this role, and they, they loved it so much that they they it basically inspired the, the gopher. Because as, as the gopher's famous line is, he's not in the Winnie the Pooh books, you know? So he's always saying, I'm not in the book, you know? Um, but yeah, they, they basically created the gopher role um, in order to revise this... Um, this beaver roll. Which is something, because that's 22 years later. Yeah, that is something. The zoo is the zoo is a beautiful zoo, and it's it's one of those great like city zoos that you don't see that much anymore. It looks it looks pretty much like the Central Park Zoo. Um, yeah, it's it's a lovely huge zoo in a very small town in the middle of Missouri. Um, the t- the size of the town shifts uh, obviously because during the the Bella Note scene they go above the town and it looks very much like Los Angeles. Yeah, the, the that was one thing I noticed too is that this town and you know again reading it charitably maybe they're they're doing it on purpose it's it's every place and no place you know like um, maybe there's a purposeness to it maybe it was just a practical thing where you know different artists were in charge at different times and they didn't they weren't really <laughs> watching what was happening but um, I noticed like the there's um, you know architectural style shifts you know which is true in a town too you know yeah. like because because of the way that they are but it's very difficult to to get a feel of the geography of the town like where where exactly you are um 
But going back to your point, which I'd not heard before, um, Sarah, that, you know, Walt wanted both to be beautiful, the city and the, the natural world, you know, in that Bella Note song, when they're, you know, it's a beautiful song, and then they, you know, they, they, they raise up, you know, the, the camera pans up to, to see and you in my initial thought was, of course, they're going to the stars, you know, the line of the song is, you know, the stars in the, in the skies have, or the, yeah, look to the skies, they have stars in their eyes, but instead you get all the laundry, you know, which I thought yeah, was just, that's very cute. looks like the upper yeah. east side or the lower east side. Yeah, but there's, there's a beauty in the laundry too, but uh-huh. it's also so mundane, you know, like, I mean, it's not what you would think of as, as beautiful initially. So I, I thought that was a really interesting choice. Although it is what you would think of as beautiful, maybe if you grew up in the sort of neighborhood that Lady grew up in, because because that's that's a very foreign thing to uh, to her experience. Yeah, and that's a good point too. That the 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 thing that is foreign to us is often is often beautiful. Yeah, I wanted to go all the way back to the beginning too, and just you know, kind of the that opening uh, sequence with Lady. Um, being a gift, um, I, what struck me was was just the amount of time that they really spend just, you know, setting the stage. It's very different from, uh, you know, kind of modern sensibilities on how much time you would spend on that in a movie. But I, I really, I thought the slow pace really served uh, the movie well, and and uh, yeah, it was just it was nice to just kind of settle in in that way. Yeah, that opening scene is really wonderful too. The 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 snow is really beautifully animated, and the the thing with the hat box, which is a true story, Walt Disney gave his wife a dog and a hat box like that. Yeah, and then the uh, the whole the whole thing where you know putting the dog in the kitchen and and she's trying to get out. Like I mean, they, they it really it stretches on for a long time, and um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Didn't My anybody tell that... Lady about Sundays? <laughs> oh. Yeah. That, that is very true. Well, and the other thing that what that I caught, you know, on the umpteenth viewing this time is, you know, again, they have, like, all dog owners, uh, and probably, let's be honest, all pet owners in general, you have this great, they start out with immediately, with this, like, we are going to be very, like, our dog will be very well behaved. And, you know, she immediately is like, oh, I want to be with y'all. Because that, you know, dogs are instinctively pack animals. They just desperately want to be with you wherever you happen to be. And and with our dog, Kara, it's generally like if we're traveling somewhere, she's like, I'm going to be in the front seat with you. And I'm like, you're a 95-pound Rottweiler. You have to be in the back seat. Um, but she she's just desperately trying to get up to them. Um, and I thought it was really funny because – uh, she's kind of doing this crying and, you know, you can see her get all hopeful because she's not actually really upset. Like, oh, he's coming. Jim Deere is coming. And then, like, oh, be- like, kind of a letdown because you-, you can see her, like, kind of faking the cry like she's hurt. And then, like, oh, yes, it worked. And then, like, dang it, it didn't work. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that that goes back to the unfairness theme that I think you really feel as a kid. And then as an adult, you can resonate with and, and kind of think about, okay, how, like, what is my perspective on, on people or animals or whatever, you know, because I, I mean, the, I think that same thing happens with kids so often where they're, they're so hopeful and, and happy about something that they've done, you know, and then we come and be like, why did you do that? You know, like, what, what are you thinking? You know, why did you uh, cover your body in spaghetti or whatever, you know, but like for them, it's like, 
you know, like like there's a joy in it, you know, and a discovery and whatever, and they're they're feeling good. That was so, too I don't specific know, that was... to be made up, Josh. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I have I have four daughters, so uh, well, these things happen probably. But... One of the things you also get in that beginning scene that I think looks really good, and they animate it really well, is when she's going up, she's like, "I am gonna get to them. Nothing will keep me from my people," and. She's at the bottom looking up the the staircase, which at the angle, it seems like they're asking her to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Yeah, that's a great shot. Um, Because it's just this very long, steep staircase. And you're like, oh, that's so like, no, that's just like a normal staircase size. It's not that big. But like the the, I think that they do such a good job of like that's when the first time I think they really like show the world from the dog's perspective and. You know, they have, they do a lovely job in this movie with the background um, that I, I, I wrote it down when they were um, from the, uh, from when I was watching the extras, is you really don't have very many sound effects in this movie. Um, you just have incredibly um, well-timed background music, and that substitutes for most of the um, uh, sound effects. Mm. And so, you know, and so you can you can hear uh, like the strings as she's going up the the staircase and she's trying to go up and then she kind of falls a little bit and it, and it like develops like her her theme and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and it's, it's just so incredibly charming and well done. And again, the idea of like, oh, well, just for tonight, she can sleep there. And then six months later. Yeah, my thought on that one was nobody makes good decisions at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you know, like he, he had made his decision beforehand, but at two o'clock, it's just like, OK, fine, just get in the bed. Um, <laughs> Which is another thing Very kids do, right? you do with children. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. My, I mean, my I have kids in my bed almost every night, so I've, I've made the same those same two o'clock in the morning decisions, so. I'm just interested in uh, the fact that Jim Deere and Darling apparently don't go to church. Yeah, yeah. I was. I remember thinking that being a. I, I legit actually remember thinking that being like, well, uh, why aren't they going to church? Doesn't everybody go to church on Sundays? Maybe they're Jewish. Seventh Day Adventists, maybe. But then they <laughs> wouldn't be celebrating Christmas. Hmm. Well, now I'm confused. Of course, it is the day after Christmas, so maybe uh, maybe they had just come back from church the night before. We have not yet talked about Trusty and his grandfather, Old Reliable. I don't recollect if we've mentioned Old Reliable before. <laughs> no, you haven't. I don't know that I have much to say about him other than that line, which is, you know, another thing that almost everybody remembers about this movie. I thought it was great that, um, you know, you, you're, you've come to believe that he has no sense of smell. And then when Jock calls him on it and you just that look that he gives him. Yeah. Of, of uh, you know, how dare you? <laughs> yeah, it's, ha- it's half hurt and half you're an idiot. <laughs> yeah. And then. <laughs> And he completely obviously redeems himself because not only does he track him down, he tracks him down in what would be difficult circumstances for any sim town, right? Like they're not going through like a foresty area where they're dragging a carcass or, you know, like, no, it's, you know, a cobbled street with lots of water where you're going to 
Like he, that actually is a difficult thing for even really good scent hounds to do. And following um, a wagon, not a person. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and again, it's this very interesting how you, we've talked about how, uh, I think you mentioned it, Josh, how the size of the town and its kind of location in America seems to shift. Um, and so this lovely picturesque small town becomes this very dark, threatening, like, place at night and in all the rain um and so you know they chase it down and uh you know they go after the horses and i my question to you gentlemen is should walt have kept with the original storyline and should trusty have died yeah oh before we get to that i was going to say like with with him tracking through the mud and the rain and stuff again it's that subtle um way that they they threaded this story together so well i was really impressed with because that's one of the first things they say was that he used to track uh criminals through the swamps or something like that you know so like he's he has that experience and and they just i don't know there's so many little touches like that i don't know if it's because i'm not as familiar with this one that i picked them up or if it if there's there's more of a richness here than we've (laughs) had so far in that area right like in that area of of a tight storytelling um but yeah, the uh, the way the scene plays, Sarah, to answer your question, I think it's too much of a whiplash. And I think they learn from it um, because we get this exact same trick pulled on us um, in Jungle Book <laughs> when we get there, right? You think that the the guy has died and he hasn't, but they play it much longer in Jungle Book. And this one, it was just it was so fast. You know, you go from the from the howling to um, Merry Christmas. It just I, I think I think that. That stole from it more than anything. Mm-hmm. The scene with Trusty proves that the elderly aren't useless. Because, <laughs> I mean, that's his arc, right? Is that he's too old to do anything. He's just kind of a babbling old fool. But that turns out not to be true. Yeah, very true. Um, and you can even kind of see it, uh, the house that he is attached to. Like if you look, you know, be like the one shot that we really get of it is kind of looks like this palatial, like gone with the wind, 12 Oaks, this kind of giant Southern style mansion. That's apparently like in, you know, somewhere where it snows a lot. Um, and so, yeah, you get that. And he's kind of like tracking stuff. So in my mind, he was like, he, he's probably from Louisiana. Cause that's where swamps are. Uh, but I, I, I kind of, I love his slightly like, well, I just, I love his old man friendship with trusty or not with trusty with jock, which is essentially because they both live next door to each other. And they're like, well, I guess we're friends now. We would be, we would be remiss if we did not discuss, uh, the role of this movie in the Disney parks, which is that there is a restaurant called Tony's town square in main street, USA in Walt Disney world. And it is one of the worst restaurants you'll ever go to. So don't go there. Yeah. And I think the main street USA was somewhat modeled off after, I mean, in the same way that this town was supposedly modeled after, uh, Walt's hometown in Missouri. Um, you know, I think they were both kind of modeled in that same way. Yeah, def- um, definitely. So they, they, they feel very similar. And, of course, there's a, a new live-action feature of uh, Lady and the Tramp that is being filmed as we as we record this. <gasps> um, and so, uh, again, just to Why? 
for for new listeners, this this is why our podcast is named what it is before they were live because it seems like Disney is going through the entire canon and and turning it into live action features rather than animated features. So, so are they using real dogs? Michael, you know I I don't like to know about these things. Yeah, so that's true. I, I, <laughs> I didn't even know they were making a movie. I I presume they're like in my head it would, they're probably going to do it like they did with Jungle Book where they do like you know. Uh, or the newer uh, live-action Jungle Book, where it was kind of they did like a combination of like the human and like the digital uh, animals, and you know, I, 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 the thing that makes me so sad for this one is that you know this idea like I can't believe that human creativity has just died so much that all we can do is remake old things. So what what amazing things, what new, <clears throat> what new stories that could become, you know the amazing movies that we look back on in 50 years, are we missing because we're, we're just remaking old stuff. Um, and so much of that I know is that nostalgia is money and that there are very few things people love more, especially, uh, people from around my age, um, early to mid thirties than our own childhood. And so they just keep refeeding it to us, but you know, it doesn't, I want something new. I want something new and I want new, cool, amazing Disney movies. And we're just, we're not really getting those anymore. Well, and, and to be fair, I think this might be the modern version of the re-release. So it used to be that all these movies got re-released to theaters every nine years. I think it was because I, I remember seeing lady and the tramp in the theater in the late eighties. Cause oh, I don't remember seeing it in the theater, but I remember that McDonald's happy meals were themed after Lady and the Tramp, which I assume must have been because the movie got re-released. Now that we have home viewing, you don't need that, and they have to find some new way to make money off these old properties. So why not make live-action movies? But I wonder if they took, you know, even a... That that is very fair of you, Michael. I will say that that was very fair. But I wonder if they took even a fraction of the cost that goes into creating this, you know, these movies and these abominations, um, and just put it into remarketing. Like even though, yeah, that, you know, they are available already. Um, you know, how many people, you know, take the time to go watch them? You know, people love the new and the shiny. But like, if you really, um, mar- you know, just poured the marketing and energy into no go watch this old thing like would that work you know well here's <laughs> a question for know. you would you rather have the live action remakes or the crappy straight to dvd sequels because lady in the tramp has a notable crappy straight to dvd sequel i think it's called scamps adventure yeah i would definitely rather have the the crappy uh straight to video or straight to dvd because nobody because we kind of all knew what that was. There wasn't a pretense yeah. behind it. Um, so we were at least being intellectually honest with what those were. And I will say um, the Cinderella one was particularly horrendous um, because there's a whole subplot with one of the stepsisters becoming nice. And there's a thing where she's learning to make pudding and like gets together with one of the castle guards. It's very weird. I like pudding but though. Pudding, pudding is a good thing, but and. Yeah, but I feel like those were at least very intellectually honest um, with what they were trying to achieve. The the new idea of like, oh, look at this amazing thing we've created. Like, no, no, you're like, 
you're 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 not create you're not creating something new and good. You're just giving me the same thing. Um, you know, it, it's instead of giving me a really good hamburger, you're just like, oh, well, we're gonna deconstruct it and do all these fancy things and look at like. No, I really just kind of wanted the hamburger, right? Like the uh, live action Lady and the Tramp is molecular gastronomy. I love it. Yeah, it's something no one really asked for, and when you have it, you're like, well, I mean, I guess this reminds me of the original, sort of, but they have to put all these new things in it, um, which they really did. If if I'm if I'm still around long enough, and y'all are still doing this by the time you get to uh, Beauty and the Beast. I have so many thoughts about that live-action remake. Um, I have never seen a live-action Disney remake, I'm glad to say. And and now yeah. that we have this show, I have the perfect excuse to not see them. Well, yeah, you, you, okay, the, the, the Beauty and the Beast one, I, I got suckered in with the marketing, and then halfway through, I'm just like, oh, this is so disappointing. I think that's, that's my... Um, wonder or the thing i wonder about it is how many people will see the live action and never go back and watch the animated ones you know and particularly with something like uh beauty and the beast or with lady and the tramp where it's in some ways it's still animation right like if there are like the jungle book like where all those animals are animated it's just a different kind of animation um you know like it's all computer animated and then stuck in like um so they're calling it live action, but it, it's still a form of animation that's replacing the old animation. And and for what purpose? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's just I don't know. Maybe I'm just crud crud crudmudgery. Curmudgeonly. <laughs> yeah. I feel <laughs> Maybe like that's my problem. I feel like being curmudgeonly is kind of one of the requirements to be on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Yeah, maybe so. We just get together and complain about things. We're usually pretty positive on this show, I have to say. Oh, y'all, y'all generally are, and I, I, I have to say, I'm, I'm quite thrilled to get to be on it. I, I've been the second that I that y'all announced it, I um, over a year ago, my first thought was like, oh, I can't wait for them to get to Lady and the Tramp. And here we are. There we were. Dreams do come true. If you can dream it, we can do it. That's our motto here. <laughs> yes well since you guys mentioned the network uh we don't often um mention the uh goings on around the network unless it directly ties into us somehow but um yeah sarah uh thank you so much for being here with us and um you can find sarah over on uh the christian feminist uh podcast um look for the science fiction ones um and then uh, coming up here uh, this month is the uh, annual podcast uh, crossover. Michael, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, we're doing uh, Alfred Hitchcock movies. So Josh will be on an episode, but we don't we don't carry that on this show just because this show is so specialty. Um, but if you listen to our other shows, Christian Humanist Podcast, Christian Feminist Podcast, Book of Nature, Sectarian Review, and City of Man – all of those uh, will have various crossover people talking about various Hitchcock movies. I know I'm on City of Man and we're talking about Rear Window. Victoria and I are actually on that together. So, Yeah, and I'll be on the Sectarian Review and I'm blanking on the movie that we're watching Shadow now. of a Doubt, but, I think? Yes, I yeah, seen that that's one. exactly right. Sarah, are yeah. you, are you on, in on that? 
Yeah, yes. I am going to be with uh, Christina Bieber-Lake and Charles Hackney, and we are going to be discussing Psycho. Great. Don't don't get Charles started. <laughs> Sorry, that's a joke for people who listen to Book of Nature. That's basically Charles's catchphrase. Don't get me started. Well, um, we I was we were the same, uh, the three of us were all in the cross up crossover episode last year on Frankenstein. So I was just like, yes, signing up for that same group again. Awesome. Yeah, that Frankenstein episode was really good. And I would encourage everyone to, um, if you're looking for more podcasts to listen to and you're not already listening to um, the ones on this network, uh, then you are missing out. So um, go and check them out. They, they all have huge back catalogs, um, some more than others, but you're sure to find something uh, that is interesting to you and um, and hopefully edifying and and, uh, and uh, shaping your imagination as well um, in, a, in a Christianly way. All right. Well, um, I didn't uh, mean to jump to the end there. If you guys had um, anything else you wanted to say on uh, on Lady and the Tramp before we before we finish up, I do not. Um, not on my end. It's just been a real pleasure getting to talk with you guys. Thanks for coming on, Sarah. Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, we really enjoyed having you. Um, well, Michael and I know that there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on, so thank you for choosing us. Uh, we also, um, as we just mentioned, uh, want to just remind you that Before They Were Live is a proud member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Christian Philippic, and uh, please help us continue this conversation. Uh, Sarah reached out to us on Twitter, um, and that's how she ended up on the show, so it uh, could happen to you as well. Um, I'm at the alt. Uh, at the underscore alt and Michael is at Michael Farmer. Uh, Sarah, do you want to tell them where they can find you? Um, I am at Sarah bear underscore G. All right. And so, um, yeah, if you have um, po- positive feedback for any of us, we'll, we'll be glad to have it. Um, you can send negative feedback uh, only to Michael. Yeah. And- <laughs> I, would pre- I would appreciate that. Uh, I'm just kidding. Um, we do have a, a email address also, which is before they were live at gmail.com. Uh, we also have a website um, that is very occasionally updated um, with show notes, um, and that is before they were live, before they were dot live. Uh, we'd love it if you visited us. Um, now for Michael Farmer and Sarah uh, Kuster and myself, Josh Altman-Chofer, uh thank you for listening. I remind you to look at the skies. They have stars in their eyes.